The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the second Doctor story, The Web of Fear. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going, Dom? Very well, thanks. And Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, be sure to follow The Secrets of Doctor Who in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, your favorite podcast app, or at the StarQuest Media YouTube channel, where you should also make sure to hit the bell to get notifications. I want to let you know that we have merch. That's right. You can get your very own Secrets of Doctor Who t-shirt, mug, phone case, and more. We have all kinds of stuff there at sqpn.com slash merch, M-E-R-C-H. It's a fantastic, fun design that features uh, Jimmy, Father Corey, and I. Uh, as our favorite doctors and with the TARDIS. So check Some it out. Some of our favorite doctors. Some yep. of, right. I mean, we, we, we would have to be multiple doctors at a time. But uh, <laughs> so check it out. Let us know what you think. Also, I want to tell you about another show on the network you're sure to enjoy called The Secrets of Technology at sqpn.com slash technology or wherever you find fine podcasts. So, yes, we are talking about The Web of Fear, which is a second doctor story, which features the great intelligence again. And this one is from the uh, second season of out of three of the second doctor. And it's a six part series, a six part Mm -hmm. uh, story. And until 2013, only one episode was available. I think episode one was the only one that was available. Then several more were found. And then only episode three was missing. And so in 2021, an animated version of episode three was released. So that's uh, that's very timely. And previously, there had been a Telesnaps version of Episode 3, and that's what you can see on BritBox, although you can also, on Amazon, purchase the series with the animated Episode 3 in it, um, which is how I watched it. Mm -hmm. The bizarre thing, or unfortunate thing, is Episode 3 actually exists, and we know it exists Hmm. because it was found in Nigeria in a batch of other episodes. But before it was turned back to the, that batch was turned back to the BBC, somebody stole it. Mm. And so they like they found it. They logged it. They were getting ready to ship it back to the BBC and somebody stole it, likely because it is the first appearance of uh, future Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart. Correct who's only a colonel at this time. Yep. And it was so someone probably said, hey, this is the first appearance of the Brigadier. Let's make money by selling it to a collector. Yep. So it should out it should be out there in some collector's private collection, but it has not yet been returned to the BBC. Mm. Yeah. So we had to have this animated substitute. Otherwise, we'd have the whole thing in Correct. motion video. That's so frustrating. So yeah. uh I I bought the DVD, but my apparently my DVD player is broken. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell how often I watch DVDs and Blu-rays. Uh, so I, I had to watch the Telesnap version on BritBox, but, uh, you both watched the animated version, like you said, 
Uh, before we get to the recap of it, just tell us, tell, tell me what you think of the animated version. Is it as good as the Macro Terror and the oh, other animated stuff? No, I am not a fan. I am absolutely. I was ranting to to Dom before we started recording, and I am mm-hmm. not a fan of the animation. I, if you remember, like late '90s, early 2000s video games when they started doing in uh, engine uh, clips in in engine video, where yeah. the it looked jerky, the the figures were awfully done and everything you know just very primitive that's what this looks like to me i mean it just looked awful in my opinion so i would say i mean i i'm i prefer the animation to the telesnaps Mm -hmm. so it's i i wouldn't Mm -hmm. want to say that it's so bad it's like oh just don't even watch it no 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 i think it's fine as long as you're not expecting it to be great it's still (laughs) it's just a basic I mean, some parts of it are nice. I mean, I do like the way the Yetis look in the yep. animation, but the human figures and, and the backgrounds are fine. It's the human figures and specifically their motion mm-hmm. that's the problem. What, it, what their motion reminded me of was Jerry and Sylvia Anderson's super marionation process. Oh, sure. If you've ever seen yep. like uh, Thunderbirds Argo or Captain Scarlet or any of those old super marionations where they have essentially puppets mm-hmm. that, are, that are performing the actors and the puppets have this kind of dangly, jerky, not natural motions to their bodies. That's mm-hmm. what this is like. It it looked to me for this 20 minutes that, oh, these are suddenly Jerry and Sylvia Anderson have risen from the grave and possessed these characters <laughs> um, because of how dangly their motions are, as if they're marionettes. And um, so it's it's certainly, to my mind, better than watching uh, just telesnaps or just listening to the audio, but it isn't up to the no. standard of animation they've been setting on other animated recreations. Yeah. I wonder and, if it's the same. And it's by it's not. It's a different group. Okay. Mm. And I, it's uh, it's it's also that the characters didn't look the same. Like Victoria looked absolutely nothing like her. Right. Nothing. You know. It just the 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 doctor did more or less. The I think the the oh, Colonel yeah, weird, Brigadier weird did. lines drawn on his face. Yeah. It's just it was bizarre i i don't know why they made the animation choices they did for this one especially since it was only one episode it wasn't even a full serial that they were animating like macro terror and things like that i wonder if t- like the the lockdown the covid lockdowns and all that sort of stuff put a a, a crimp in their production or something i, I don't know i'd be I, shocked I, since they this I, is the kind of stuff they do now on computers and could do remotely so yeah yeah, yeah. I, I think it's more the fact it was just a single episode mm. so they the the people the, so they wanted to do it on the cheap and if they had gone back to one of the houses they've been using for the full productions it's like well do you realize how much design work we're going to have to do for right. you know to 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 make every all the characters we need and everything mm-hmm. like that and and we need this amount of money in order to do that and it's like well it's just one episode we're not getting a whole series out of it so we'll go with the cheaper group yeah. Low bid. <laughs> and, and, as Jimmy said, though, you, you can watch the BritBox, watch it on BritBox and see the Telesnaps. If you do want to watch the animation, it's only like 3 or $4 on Amazon. It, so you can buy that particular episode, which is how I did it. Okay, without buying the, the uh, Blu-ray or the DVD. Blu-ray or I, the full set of the, because the, it is online Prime Video, yeah. like I said, 3 bucks, 4 bucks. So this if you, you want to at least see it, it's, <laughs> guess yeah, we're and, seeing and it. And I, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm not. I don't think I'm as negative on it. It's it's not what I would 
prefer, but it's way better than just audio okay. or mm-hmm. or just telesnaps. Hopefully, with future animations, they'll they'll go back to doing the the other way. So, or yeah, yeah, or and or for this, the the collector or his <laughs> heirs will finally turn in the oh. missing video. <laughs> please, please. So even uh, just a copy of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, like put it put it online somewhere, <laughs> like on Daily Motion, <laughs> <laughs> just you know anonymously uh, or something like that. Anyway. So, um, why don't Jimmy? Why don't you give us a recap of what actually happens in this story? The great intelligence manipulates the Doctor Jamie and Victoria into coming to the 1970s or maybe 1960s London, where the army is trying to thwart an offensive that the great intelligence is conducting. It turns out that after the Doctor and crew defeated the great intelligence and its robotic Yetis in Tibet in 1935. The doctor's friend, Professor Travers, took a bunch of Yeti and control parts back to England. Foolishly tinkering with the equipment, Professor Travers accidentally activated a Yeti control sphere, which the great intelligence then used to his advantage. Now, London is shrouded by a fog that nobody ever comes out of. There's an army of unstoppable Yeti marching through the streets, or lumbering through the streets, The London subway, or underground, is filling up with a Yeti-created fungus, and the army is trying to stop them from within the underground. Things aren't going well, and all of the army men, except Colonel Lethbridge-Stewart and a cowardly, selfish comedy Welsh private, get killed. All of them. It turns out that the Great Intelligence has been watching the Doctor in space and time and realized that the Doctor also has a fantastic intelligence. He's brought the Doctor here to London because he wants to drain all of the Doctor's knowledge, leaving him with the mind of a child. Also, the Great Intelligence has an unknown confederate who's hiding among the good guys. In the end, the traitor is revealed, and the Doctor surrenders himself to the mind wipe. But the Doctor has sabotaged the Intelligence devices and is planning on permanently draining the Great Intelligence instead. Unfortunately, Jamie uses a reprogrammed Yeti to stage a daring attack, and he rips the Doctor out of the machine, out of the mind-wipe machine. This causes it to disintegrate, and the Great Intelligence escapes, only to come back and menace the world again in the time of the 11th Doctor. The end. So, yes, the return of the Great Intelligence, which shows up quite a lot, a lot more than I thought it it did. It it would, um, when I first saw it in the, uh, the Christmas special, the abominable the snowman. snowman the snowman the, the snowman mm-hmm. right 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 uh because um that and that was the one with the richard, richard e grant which we talked about in the uh, the curse of fiddle death uh, a few days ago so let's uh in, well so that we have the abominable the, the snow the abominable snowman then we have the snowman which is the christmas special well, and then, there's the the yeti i i i forget if the original series so the original place that the great intelligence was introduced Mm-hmm. was in the episodes or the series set in 1935 in Tibet right. which i it was either called doc was either called the yeti or the abominable snowman that was it this yeah. is the great intelligence's second appearance right and then there's this enormous gap and it doesn't and it doesn't come back until the snowman christmas special in stephen moffat's time and then it gets used twice more at least in mm-hmm. that se- in that se- in that season leading up to the name of the doctor which right. is the last we've seen of it right. on camera so far 
Thank and the, the, the original serial was Abominable Snowmen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. So it shows that it, it showed up a few times, and of course, there's that timey wimey stuff where the 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 what was it, Eleventh Doctor? Mm-hmm. The Eleventh Doctor precedes a, it. Yeah. Cre- it, it precedes this by about going on a hundred years. Yeah. yeah. And Stephen Moffat, who likes timey wimey stuff, decided to create a bootstrap paradox. So in right. In in the Snowmen with Matt Smith's Doctor, Matt Smith's Doctor shows the Great Intelligence a lunchbox with the map of the London Underground from 1968, yep. right, and refers to it as a key strategic weakness in a major metropolis, <laughs> which it then gets exploited as in mm-hmm. this episode set in Patrick Troughton's second Doctor time. So we have yep. the Doctor causing his own problem for his past self. That's right. Okay. Yep. So this this story does start right from where we left off with the uh, en- enemy of the world. I think it was yep. called. Yes, and, uh, enemy of the world. Where oh, the yeah, salamander, salamander yes. has just been time spaced. Yeah, <laughs> defenestrated. Uh, is there a door version of that? Anyway, he's he's been ca- uh, thrown out of the TARDIS by his own actions by launching the TARDIS with the doors open, and so he's been sucked out into the into the void. And Jamie has to you know action hero. Close the doors before the the doctor in Victoria and he get sucked out too. And by the way, notice the knowledge that Jamie and Victoria are displaying of the TARDIS console panel. Mm-hmm. I mean, they may not be fully fully piloting the ship, but Jamie knows what button to push to close the doors. Right. And both Jamie and Victoria recognize that this flashing light here means we've landed or are landing. Yes. And they the doctor has them checking other things. Mm-hmm. Like running through a checklist of things involving controls on the console. So even though we don't see them piloting the TARDIS, like some later companions, they're obviously getting to know how its controls work. Right. Exactly. Which is especially you know uh, impressive given that uh, Jamie's from the 18th century and Victoria is from the 19th century. So uh, they've they've gotten some some interesting future knowledge. Uh, so we have the now elderly Travers, who they had run into in the Himalayas, Tibet. Played uh, by the same actor. Same yep. actor, made to look older. Um, mm-hmm. And he's in he, a museum he, or private he, collection. He, yeah, his, his name, by the way, the actor's name is Jack Watling. Uh, yeah. And he is the father of Deborah Watling, who yep. is Victoria. That's right. That's right. So whenever you see um, Victoria and Professor Travers playing a scene together, that's father and daughter. Yeah, and, yeah, and like supposedly when he's there, a, were, there <laughs> were scenes that they had to reshoot because she kept busting out laughing every time she'd see her dad in the old old man makeup. Yeah. <laughs> yes. uh, also, so, we while we're while we're mm-hmm. while we're telling behind the scenes stories like that. Um, so Patrick Troughton and um, Fraser Hines were well known for playing behind the scenes pranks and mm. breaking stuff up and. The com- the the companion we haven't really met yet in our rewatch is Zoe, and Zoe talks. Uh, the uh, the actress who played Zoe has talked a lot about this, and so has uh, Deborah Watling. Um, and so in this, there's a moment where uh, they're in the subway, and uh, they're trying to find Victoria, and she's been wearing a kind of necklace. And Jamie picks up the necklace from the train tracks and says, this is, this is Victoria's. She must be this way. And in one of the, in one of the takes on, in a deliberately flubbed take, 
Fraser Hines picks up a pair of ladies' underwear and says, this belongs to Victoria. <laughs> she must have gone this way. And and Patrick Troughton, who I guess was standing by, even though he's not in that scene, takes the ladies' underwear and says, oh, why, yes, it, so it is. She must be this way. At which point, Professor Travers, who is in reality Victoria's father, says, how do you know they're hers? <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it caused the whole set to crack up <laughs> that's funny that's funny uh, and mortifying for poor deborah watling <laughs> oh she no she apparently and got she apparently appreciated this oh, okay more than um uh, and i'm blanking on her full name but uh more than the actress who played zoe appreciated some of the pranks oh. deborah watling <laughs> apparently liked this story and told it multiple times oh, okay you know it kind of explains the uh, the uh personalities between the doctor and and jamie you know, how they were yeah. they would riff on each other and you know yeah. give each other you grief could, you know it obviously that was a them carrying yeah. carrying over from their their off-screen personalities that's right yeah and they often have little comedy things like at some point in this jamie like faints and the and drops something important and the doctor just reaches out and catches it <laughs> yeah. and it's I was like i doubt that was in the script i, yeah. I you know that that's business that um that Troughton and, and Hines came up with. Right. By the way, speaking of the script, I wanted to mention, so this is, has two authors, uh, Mervyn something or other, and Henry Lincoln. And Henry Lincoln is a name that I have known in another context for decades. I've also known mm -hmm. he, and he also was one of the writers of the original mm -hmm. Abominable Snowman series, but mm -hmm. he's one of the three co-writers of the, of Holy Blood, Holy Grail which was hmm. the basis for the Da Vinci Code. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so it was Bajent, Lee, and Lincoln were the authors of Holy Blood, Holy Grail, which is a conspiracy theory involving a bloodline from coming from Jesus and Mary Magdalene in France, and it's all a huge hoax. Mm -hmm. We did an episode of Mysterious World on it, but every time Henry Lincoln's name comes up, it's like, oh, I know that guy, and I know what he did later, and it wasn't good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, but it, it doesn't it, stop me from enjoying what Doctor Who he's written. But it does kind of color how I approach the story, like looking into the mind of the guy who would do that. <laughs> so it is interesting. Uh, but right, so, he was a fiction writer. Yes. Mm -hmm. And he, he just kept doing that. Kept doing mm -hmm. it and forgot to tell people it was fiction. <laughs> so um, we have Travers in a, I guess it's a private collection of this guy named Silverstein, although they called it a museum at once. And there's a robot oh, Yeti there on display. That's because it was originally planned to be filmed in a museum, but the museum denied filming access, and so they mm. had to relocate it to a private re residence. Okay, so they 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 obviously didn't change some of the uh, some dialogue. of the dialogue to fix that. So uh, Travers is trying to warn that it's dangerous. His do his daughter Anne has flown in from wherever America, to, um, oh, from America, right? Somewhere in America, uh, be because he's been upset and. Because one of the spheres that he's been tinkering with has gone missing, and he's afraid it's been activated, and et cetera, et cetera. And this guy, Silverstein, you know, it's kind of in a trope, refuses to believe him, and that ends up being his doom. Now, one of the things that, that I had to go back and check is there's a 10-year gap between this scene and the rest of the the story. Mm -hmm. I hmm. I didn't get that at first. I was I was kind of confused because yeah, they didn't I, say it explicitly. I, I, I didn't get that either. How did you discover that? Uh, there is a reference to the the uh, being in the in Tibet 
30 years ago, and then later on he says 40 years ago. Mm. So tra- Travers re- references it. So, um, And that's the only reason I, I figured it out. Hmm. Yeah, there, there, there's... There, there, there is a gap there, but I. I well, and it, it would help make sense of stuff like where did the great intelligence get all this stuff so quickly if it's right. just a few days? Yeah, right. I, I didn't think it was ten year, but it was, it was clear there was a gap between because um, it would have been twenty years in that first scene, and then thirty years in the yeah. in, in, for the rest of the story. Yeah, not so, so, so Silverstein says I bought this off of you thirty years ago. For thirty years, it's standing here in my museum. And then, oh, I took that to mean that he bought it off of him like ten years after, like it. So the original episode was in nineteen thirty-five. Mm-hmm. I interpreted it as like I bought this from you in nineteen forty-five. Yeah, I I think it's supposed to be the, the other because because then that's when it makes sense, right? Um, that all this stuff has happened because then Travers later on in the um the HQ in the underground, uh says to Anne when he sees Jamie how could this be that's over 40 years ago so mm-hmm. that's Which why would I mean this is after 1975 although it, it they don't play it that way yes yeah <laughs> uh, which would be yeah in the future from when it was released which uh, they could have done and did yeah. try to do during the unit era mm-hmm. yes yes so yeah the uh so Back to the TARDIS. The TARDIS gets stuck in space in a kind of web, so it's trying to go, and it's saying it's it's landed, but it hasn't. Um, and then when the Doctor gets it unstuck, it ends up in the tunnel in the underground at, um, is it Charing Cross? Coven Garden? I forget which. Coven Garden. I got all of those stations mixed up in my head. <laughs> and it, it's not all that important, but... Uh, yeah, you, and, you, do get, do you get to see a lot of the, the stations, which, of course, happen to be the same set with the names changed, but... Yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, and speaking of the set, it was so realistic that the BBC got a letter of complaint from, I guess, the London Metropolitan Underground Authority saying, mm-hmm. how dare you film on in our um, in our tunnels without without permission. <laughs> right. <laughs> but of course, you, you look closer at the tracks and stuff. You can see they're just wood with some, um, you know, tinfoil yeah. basically on top of them. Yeah. But yeah. Not as obvious on a low res no, exactly. TV, TV exactly. screen back in the 60s. Yes. So uh, it is. Uh, there is a nice line from the Doctor, where as they come out of the uh, the TARDIS and realize they're in the uh, the underground, uh, he says, "Hey, funny, isn't it? How we keep landing on your Earth?" <laughs> it's yeah, just yeah. A nice, uh, like the fourth wall little thing about how doesn't it funny how the Doctor keeps coming back to Earth? Aliens, uh, us? Is this one of your Earth jokes? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, so. Uh, there is also another nice recognition of like Jamie being not from this era. Because as he jumps off the platform down to the tracks, the doctor freaks out. Jamie, don't move. Don't touch the rails. And until the doctor determines that there's no electricity running through the third rail, because as anyone who is lives in a city with uh, subways knows, don't touch the third rail. That's yeah. the electrified one. You will die. Uh, so it, it's that's what you're talking about, you know, doing a political, you know, talking about something political is, is touching the third rail purposely, you know, reaching for something that's going to cause fireworks. Death. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, and then we uh, we get to see now uh, Travers has been brought in by the military at this underground uh, headquarters for the the army that is apparently trying to stop the spread of the Yetis and the um, so. Yeah, their mission is a little unclear. Yeah, because the, you've got these you've got um, these military people here from the army, not unit. Unit doesn't exist yet, mm-hmm. at, at least on screen. 
but you've got these military people here from the army, and then you've got these civilians here because you've got Travers and his daughter Anne, who is awesome, mm-hmm. and and you've got this embedded reporter named Chorley, mm-hmm. who's awful, who's awful, <laughs> and there's and there's some deliberately. I mean, he's deliberately unsympathetic. Yes. yes. And there's this tension between what are we doing here? Is this a military expedition or is it a scientific one? And that question is still apparently open for debate. Mm. And so their goals are a little unclear. Yeah. And yeah, because Travers and his daughter are building something to apparently they're looking for a a technological solution. So there's a briefing later on, I think, in the fourth or fifth episode where we're told. Oh, it's in the third. Is it, oh, right. It's, yes. I remember now in the third because I, yeah, it's animated. So they're told that um, there's a, a mist descended on this area of London that people entered into and never came out. So it's sort of deadly mist. And that in the underground, there's fungus that looks web-like started, thus the web of fear, started spreading throughout the underground. And then these robo-yetis. And when it spreads, it looks like soap bubbles. Yeah. Yes. But yes, then that, it becomes web-like. Right. Um, so, and so at first the, the guy in command is a captain knight and, uh, who should spend less time flirting with Anne and more time doing his job. Mm. <laughs> and, and he was not meant to be in charge. Um, he has a superior officer who we learn in dialogue has just been killed right, right. in a Yeti encounter. So now he's in charge. Originally there was a colonel who, who is now dead. And that explains why the brigadier shows up. He's the new colonel being sent in to replace mm-hmm. the one who died. Right. And I got to say, you know, from the beginning, Nicholas Courtney is just awesome in this. Yeah. I just, I, no wonder they brought him back later because it's such a great character. It's such a great actor. I really enjoyed him in this. He did such yeah. a good job. And notice that this is kind of an, exp- I, I don't know if they were consciously experimenting with this one, with the format that would eventually um, end up be- becoming the third Doctor's signature. Mm-hmm. I know with uh, with a later, at least with a later Patrick Troughton story, they were consciously saying, "Okay, if the series is not going to die, we need to we need to change things for budgetary reasons. We need to set it much more on Earth. And mm-hmm. can we do this formula with an Earth based threat and the Doctor being backed up by a military organization?" And they may have been consciously experimenting with that as early as this story, right? Yeah. Uh, if not, I would think. The next logical one they were doing that with was called the invasion, mm. which involves the Cybermen, and and uh, it also was meant to involve uh, Professor Travers and his daughter Anne again, but they couldn't get the rights to use those characters, so they had to create surrogates for them. Mm. But um, Professor Travers has shown up multiple times in different Doctor Who media, including some of the licensed they are licensed but licensed fan productions during the dark time mm-hmm. between the cancellation of the series and its revival so he the same so uh jack watling has played this character multiple times in different media oh, wow. not not just in these two episodes right. interesting so what's the, the the there's an extended sequence of they're trying to blow up the tunnels to stop the 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 fungus from from growing and there's a whole thing where the doctor gets separated from jamie and victoria and the so doctor at- so patrick troughton can go on vacation the next yeah. week that's what i was gonna say yeah so i think Patrick Troughton was on vacation so uh he was missing for a long period of time and there's this concern about the tunnels being blown up with him in them and but the yeti come and they cover the explosives in cobwebs which so 
I guess, contains the explosion within the the web? Well, they never clarify that. It's clear that the cobwebs um, disable, stop the explosion somehow. Mm -hmm. What happens is they first, they cover them in in the cobwebs out of these guns they've got that shoot a mist that becomes Mm -hmm. the cobwebs. And then the boxes of the ammunition, like, glow. Mm. Right. And then they don't work, and then they're not there after Mm -hmm. a while. So it's like maybe they deactivate them and ultimately disintegrate them. Yeah, something along that. Yeah, they don't explain it, but yeah. I actually, and that, and that's okay. I'm okay with them not explaining it because mm-hmm. they do it at least consistently. Right. Yeah. So whatever's going on here, they've thought out there is this process, and I don't have to have it spoon-fed to me exactly what's happening. I know enough from what I see on screen to realize if you spray a box of explosives with this mist, it's not going to work for you. Right. Because the yeah, first time we see it, they, yeah, we have it glowing, and then it it. it the boxes are gone. You just see the remnants mm-hmm. of that cobweb. But the second time we see it, they actually had set the explosives in front of the tunnel. And while the boxes are glowing, the Yeti knock them over. So it's clear that it's not like the explosion is contained. There's something right. more going on there. Okay. Okay. The uh, Yeti are impressively hard to kill. They, they, you can blast them with grenades. So that seems to work. Okay. Mm-hmm. And if you shoot them between the eyes, that's the other way. Yeah. So you have to be a, a crack shot. And and actually, at that range, they should have been hit between the eyes a lot more than they were um, <laughs> yes. with professionally trained army. I was going to say, don't don't overestimate the accuracy of, of army when they can just spray a lot of bullets down. <laughs> Brain spray. <laughs> well, and that's I have in my notes that there is a lot, uh, lots in boldface, lots of intel- ineffectual gun shooting at the Yeti. Yeah. Also aiming way low because <laughs> if they're 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 firing at like the yeti's waists and it's like guys you've been told that it's only between the eyes is where the critical component you need to hit is stop firing at their waists you're all getting killed well, mm. and they they lumber pretty slowly so that you've got time to to aim and shoot and and skedaddle if you have to so yeah, it is. It is kind of funny. Uh, there is a there is no mention of five rounds rapid, but the 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 colonel no, that that's not until uh, doc that's not until the Damon's in the third yep, doctor's yeah. time. But the uh, the colonel does his his shooting in that same style, which is is great. Uh, at one point, Anne lays into Chorley, the journalist, for his brand of yellow journalism, and there's a whole well, she really <laughs> does. This is an extended like how journalists have totally undermined their credibility and and the media and i'm like wow that's funny for the bbc to be airing that yeah (laughs) so kind of uh, taking new meaning today that's for sure yeah well at the time the bbc were like we're professional news people we're like the new york times and it's like right yeah yeah okay maybe for a couple decades you are right right as opposed to the uh the broadsheets i suppose or the tabloids tabloids yeah that, that they were criticizing so and then uh, the Yeti are not cons- they're not mindless killing robots. At some points they will capture people, they'll corner people, and then there are these tones that that summon them or make them go. Or uh, so there's a there's a complexity to their actions. They're unpredictable uh, at many times. They very um, much are though receiving orders of some kind. They're not yes. indep- they're not independently taking initiative. Right. right. They are Which- they are robots and not. Like the Cybermen, like where have somewhat independence. The Doctor eventually uses to his benefit by reprogramming one of them to follow their commands. Yes. Um, 
let's see, the, we have the, the growing suspense of the uh, fungus and webs growing throughout the, the, the underground, and we get to see uh, displayed on this display. So they create some drama there as we see uh, station after station overtaken, and they're being encircled by the fungus. Which would mean a lot more to me if I was an inhabitant of London who was used to taking the underground and knew the yep. relationship between all these different stations they keep mentioning. Yeah, although they do show a map, so there's a, at least they give us that. But yeah, I, I agree. think the display is inconsistent in what they're mm-hmm. showing on the map. It's just yeah. periodically. And this is. I think this is kind of a fault in the middle two episodes. So like episodes, mm-hmm. ep, uh, this series starts pretty strong with, you know, pretty, it's pretty dramatic mm-hmm. and it's very dramatic. Like when, you know, they're closing the space doors to the TARDIS. But then in the middle of the story, it kind of starts to lag. And then it picks up again by the final uh, mm-hmm. part of the story. And um, and I think the last episode is very effective. But during the middle segment, there's, oh, no, the fungus is growing again. And, and, and it's closing off this place. I don't understand where it is. And it's somehow bad for us that this is happening. And, yeah. and, it, and it's just that they keep hitting that collection of notes. Yes. And after a while, it's like, okay, I just, I, this doesn't mean anything to me. This is the same thing keeps happening. And it's not obvious to me that this is a, that, that, that this is any different than the last three times this happened. As at six episodes, it was two episodes too long, probably. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, they had gone beyond their usual four. They went to six. And yeah, there was, it seemed like a lot of running through tunnels instead of quarters this time. Mm. Um, several extended action sequences, which I was thrilling for the kids, but yeah, it's, you know, battle scenes and that sort of stuff. But yeah, there was a lot of extra, uh, a lot of finger pointing and people standing around suspecting other people of being, there was an inside man and of some sort. Mm. Um, we, at and that points, kind of totally turned into a washout. Yeah, because it turned out that there really wasn't anyone voluntarily cooperating with um, with the great intelligence. All they were able to come up with was. So at one point they have. So one of the characters we haven't mentioned yet is a staff sergeant named Arnold Mm -hmm. and staff sergeant is a rank that's higher than sergeant. Mm -hmm. And so they everybody calls him staff most of the time. Except for Mr. Chorley, the unsympathetic reporter who keeps referring to him as sergeant. Right. And so staff, at one point, takes the initiative in order to find Deborah and and the professor, takes the initiative with another guy to enter, to like take a, 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 a push cart in, and push it through a tunnel that's filled with the foam. And we hear them scream. And then the uh, the the comedy Welsh private who's been left with a rope tied to the other end of t- tied to the push cart starts pulling it out, and it's got one of the two guys on it, and he's dead. Mm. And 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 then later, staff shows up, and he's been really injured, and they've like put you know some kind of coloration all over his face to indicate that he's been burned or something by the fungus. And he had, doesn't have much of a memory of what happened. And it turns out later that the great intelligence has reanimated his corpse. Yeah. That, that he died when he went into the fungus heroically. 
And then the great intelligence has now reanimated his corpse and is using it to impersonate who he was in life to achieve its own ends. But he's really not a traitor. Also, his accent, his dialect changes. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I for, I'd have to go back and check to see, does it change as soon as he reappears with the burned appearance? Because the people he's interacting with at that point are like the brigadier, and they don't know him from before. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so he could have changed to the great intelligence's accent. He had a he had a lower class accent of some kind, right. initially, and then that goes away, and then it's definitely gone by the point he reveals himself as the as I'm being reanimated by the great intelligence, and he's he's very cold, and yeah. he has he has a much higher class accent, and mm-hmm. he's really a creepy dead shell at that point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I thought the accent changed when he came came back when he still you know after they thought he was dead. I didn't think the accent changed then, but I I might have missed it. But yeah, yeah obviously that, when when he finally revealed that he was the stooge of the or the the puppet of zombie. the great intelligence, <laughs> the yeah, vessel. zombie of the great yeah. intelligence, then yeah. his accent definitely changed. And by the way, the voice of the great intelligence over the loudspeaker was the same actor. Hmm. Okay. I I I think it would have been it would have been better if they had had someone who was willingly working with the great intelligence because that's what they built it up as. Mm-hmm. And it, it's hard to see how, given when this guy died, it's it's hard to see how he would be responsible for all of the clues mm-hmm. that they used to deduce that someone was working with the great intelligence. But then that could just also all be part of the effect of let's pad this thing out by two episodes. They were clearly leading us to believe it was Chorley at, at several points because of his cowardly nature. Chorley and then well, Evans as well. And, and Evans, yeah. the well yeah. comedy Welsh private. At one point, I was suspecting it would be Anne. That would be it. I was fairly convinced it was her. Hmm. That Because that would be the clever inside man who was really inside. But ah, that was I, didn't, I didn't think of that because I knew that Anne had been slated to appear in a future episode with her father, so right. I knew she was going to be okay. Just like they were leading the audience to believe it was Lethbridge Stewart at one point as well, which we yeah. knew it w- couldn't be. Yeah. There, um, so I, I actually got the thought that it's going to be staff early on because there's one moment where in like episode four, where um, they're talking about this, and it's like, who could the person be? And then as they're walking down a corridor, and they walk past staff, and he just kind of turns, and the camera catches his face full on, and I thought, oh, that's the director signaling us it's him, which turned out to be true. But they in, in the, at the dialogue level, what's in the, actually in the script, there's lots of suspicion cast at all these other characters, for not much payoff because he's not really doing that much. I mean, the mm-hmm. great until you don't need this traitor in the story to do anything except pad the running time. He doesn't do anything effectual that the great intelligence couldn't have or didn't do some other way. But we did have so we have Chorley who's unsympathetic, and we have Evans who is oh, I know what I was going to say though. Because all of the other soldiers have died, all of the ones who worked closely with um, with with Staff Sergeant Arnold are dead, and so right. nobody because because Evans doesn't know him; he's not from their unit, right? And the and uh, Lethbridge Stewart doesn't know him; he's not from their unit. And those two characters have only just got here, and so I think it would be and it'd be interesting to go back and check to see if they do it. But 
as a directorial choice, I would have said, okay, now now you're controlled by the great intelligence. Start using the upper class accent. Mm. And it's not, I don't, it's, I don't think it's like, it's not posh. It's not like right. the creamy upper crust accent, but it's, it's higher class than what he had. And I would have, I would have said, do the switch now because mm-hmm. the characters who know you, who've worked with you closely are all dead. Yeah. But Evans is an interesting character. So he's originally, he was driving the Brigadier. I can't, and I'm just going to call him the Brigadier because <laughs> yeah, right. that's oh, yeah, who we I know him, him as. Yeah. yeah. He was driving the Brigadier and a bunch of other soldiers and a bunch of ammo mm-hmm. towards the people stationed in the underground when they were attacked by Yetis and they destroyed the ammo and they killed all the other people and the Brigadier and the driver, um, Evans, got separated. And didn't know the other had survived, and they both found their way down into the um, into where the military people are holed up. And the brigadier is very take charge and very professional, and yep. and and um, and I have more to say later about what I like about his character in this. But Evans is fascinating. <laughs> he is a he's Welsh, and he first shows up singing. And he explains he sings whenever he's scared, which is a really stupid idea. (laughs) You you don't want to be singing when you are in a dangerous area. Um, But he's he's played regularly for comedy. And he has the most multidimensional character in some ways of of the people that you meet. Because on the one hand, he is a good guy. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, he is cowardly and self-serving. Yeah. Yep. And he's funny and he is he's not a typical soldier. I mean, he is memorable. You know, you mm-hmm. see lots of like in the third doctor's era, you have lots of different unit soldiers who barely have any personality. This guy has personality. <laughs> I mean, his his while pretending, "Oh, I'm going to go with Jamie to help him find his way." And really, he's he's trying to desert. Right, he's mm-hmm. trying to find a way out so he can leave. He's gonna scupper. I yeah, love the, I love the uh, yep. the lingo. <laughs> yeah, and 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 then later it's like, okay, so the great intelligence says he'll leave us all alone if the doctor lets him do a brain drain on him. Brain drain on him. How about we do that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, and 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 so he's 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 a very intriguing character. Yeah, yeah, played for laughs. He gets. Yeah, he's the comic relief, really, of the of the whole thing. Um, I, I, and I, I like, but I like, not, not purely. He also is. Yeah. I mean, you can feel for his sense of fear and yeah. stuff like that. My my uh, job was to drive a truck here, drop the stuff off, and go back. Yes, yeah, I'm just that was driver. It. I'm just the driver. <laughs> so uh, I like our uh, staff, Arnold. I thought he was a fun, very, very stereotypical British, you know, army staff sergeant type you're very yeah no nonsense um so we 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 have um a sequence where victoria tells chorley about the tardis and so he disappears uh to go find it i suppose where he because he thinks that's where his safety will be Um, and that's one of the things where they were i think they were trying to tell uh indicate that he might be the the stooge of the great intelligence of some sort by the way you mentioned victoria talking about this to him First, though, so uh, Victoria, I really like the agency that she displays in this. She is not mm-hmm. a helpless little screamer. No. She moves the plot forward. So, like, when Travers comes in 
it's been 40 years since he's seen that. I mean, they've captured Jamie and Victoria because Patrick mm-hmm. Trout needs a vacation. Yes. So they've captured Jamie and Victoria and they're interrogating them. And Travers goes in to interrogate them. And it's been 40 years since he saw them in Tibet in a snowstorm in the dark. So he doesn't recognize them. And uh, Victoria recognizes your Professor Travers and gets Jamie to recognize it, too. And then Travers recognizes them. And then Anne comes in and doesn't understand what how this is possible that they these children knew her father 40 years ago and so and they leave it to victoria to explain and victoria is the one moving the plot forward here and i really like that Mm. i also like that jamie gets some um agency as well while patrick troughton is on vacation because they had previously part of the way they defeated the the great uh intelligence was by smashing a pyramid a little handheld type pyramid that the great intelligence was using. And Jamie remembers that. And it's, and so he says when he and Evans are going through the tunnels, he's like, if we run into a Yeti, look and see if it's got a pyramid. And if it does shoot the pyramid and then they do, they do, they run into a Yeti. It's got a pyramid and the, and at Jamie orders Evans to shoot it repeatedly, destroying it. And it's like, yeah, okay, great. This is moving the plot forward. Unfortunately, there's a bigger pyramid they don't yet know about that apparently mm-hmm. just takes over for it. Yes. But I like the agency there. I like the Brigadier's agency. I'm just going to praise these characters real quick. Yeah. Because the Brigadier, this is the first time he's ever heard of the TARDIS. He has never even seen it. But the doctor says, I've got, after they're all trapped, the doctor says, I've got this time and space ship that looks like a police box and the brigadier is like okay how do we find it yeah and and his his still currently temporarily still living a subordinate captain knight thinks this is ridiculous but um the brigadier is like look we're we're surrounded we're dead if we don't find a way out of here if there is any chance of getting out of here i'm going to thoroughly explore it so suck it up and go find that police box right right hmm. And lastly, I wanted to praise Anne. Okay. Because Anne is, so Anne is her father's daughter. Her father is an explorer and a scientist, and she is a scientist. I don't know in what exactly, but she's a scientist. She's a 1960s era scientist. Yeah, you didn't have to have a specialty back then. Right. But she is intelligent. She moves the plot forward. She is likable, and um, she's not playing into a lot of the tropes of, of the period. And she has she has agency. I just really like Anne. Yeah, I think she's a great character. Sort of a precursor of Liz Shaw later on. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I was also thinking Zoe, but she's more like yeah. Liz Shaw. Yeah, um, but but when yeah. you see her, like the Doctor is treating her as an equal. Yeah, especially like along episode five where they're working on on electronic countermeasures and they're working on these devices together, and the Doctor is treating her with respect, and it's like. This is going to be happening in like next season in Pat in, on Patrick Troughton when they introduce Zoe, the girl from the future. Okay. Although character wise, since she's an adult, she's more like Liz Shaw. But John Pertwee didn't treat Liz Shaw exactly as an equal. No, no. <laughs> so uh, meanwhile, uh, Travers ends up getting take uh, attacked by the Yeti and taken away. 
uh, and uh, they, they, he's going to end up being a, a temporary stooge for the great intelligence. Someone is uh, planting the um, Apple AirTag equivalent of little Yeti models on people to <laughs> cause the Yeti to home <laughs> in on them. Uh, that's how Captain Knight gets killed and how the the Brigadier almost gets killed and all of his <laughs> men otherwise get killed. Uh, we have that epic street battle with uh, with all the soldiers. That was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, Travers then returns, possessed by the intelligence, and this is the the trap for the doctor and demands he go. And uh, he grabs Victoria and hauls her off as a hostage to get the doctor to show up. Um, and the doctor pledges to give himself up if he can't build this alternate control box to take control of the Yeti. Meanwhile, the Jamie and Lethbridge launch a rescue operation for Victoria, this whole other thing. They get control of a Yeti. He plans to use this, this Yeti, but he needs to hide his control. So he tells it to resume working for the great intelligence until it receives further orders from the doctor to, to not, which I thought was a clever way because they were like, if this thing shows up, not yeah. under the control of the great intelligence, it's going to know something is up. And so that was a, I thought that was a little clever bit that they, they did there. And that came from Anne, who had, had come up with that, that problem that they solved. Mm-hmm. So uh, we talked about Arnold with being the, the uh, physical stooge of the great intelligence. Yeah. And, and I don't see like he was dead and gone for so much of this because mm-hmm. he kind of dies around the midpoint. Yep. That how does he end up putting the Yeti models in everybody's pocket? Yeah. You know? How does he sneak how back? Does, and, how does yeah. he do that? And there's another bit where, and this was actually a nice bit where uh, Patrick, Tra- where the doctor decides to take a sample of the fungus, mm-hmm. and he wants, and he wants something to put it in, and and he says, "Does anybody have a box?" And uh, Private Evan says, well, I've got my tobacco tin. And it's for people who may not be familiar. This is you can you can still get it today. You can get pipe tobacco in these little tins that are small enough to fit in your box, in your your pocket. Um, And they are like circular. Mm -hmm. I don't use these, but uh, but I you go to a tobacconist and you'll see them. Yep. And so it's a little circular kind of metal container that you can unscrew and 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 tobacco comes in it. Mm-hmm. So Evans volunteers, well, I've got a tobacco tin here, and but it's got tobacco in it. So Patrick Troughton just dumps it out into his yeah. hand. <laughs> so he lets Evans keep his pipe tobacco, but it's in his hand. <laughs> and, and uh and and then he 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 cuts the um he takes some scissors and goes to cut some pieces of the kind of cobweb fungus. And we get this reverse angle shot from the perspective of like inside the fungus, looking out as out at the doctor as he's preparing to cut it. And he like warned the doctor warns everybody to be careful now because apparently this stuff can be hurt and it can react. And as soon as he starts to make the first incision, it's uh it the the fungus starts the cobwebs start wobbling and there's a kind mm-hmm. of a special effect that appears on the screen and there's this shrieking sound effect and so it's like he's wounding an animal and then he makes the second cut so he gets a piece of it and he puts it in the tobacco tin and screws it up real quick and then like a couple episodes later Evans is currently under suspicion as the as the great intelligence's agent 
And Evans is like, well, I, I'm not, and then I better give this back to you right now so you don't suspect me. And he hands the doctor the tobacco tin. And the doctor's going to look at the fungus now under a microscope, and he opens it up, and it's empty. And this is apparently the work, uh, and they don't go down the path of it just disintegrated. Yeah. This is presented as if it's the work of the of the great intelligence's secret agent. So how would staff have gotten into this guy's tobacco tin to empty it out that doesn't make any sense right and they never really they never play it out any further past that yeah there is that moment where uh evans is in the in the hq and he hides behind the control board when uh the colonel you know the brigadier and arnold come back um and they are together at that point but yeah there's no clear like he sneaks out of his pocket takes out the fungus puts it back in his like it isn't clear that that's yeah. how they could do it. But. And how would he even know it was there? I mean, I guess they could explain that if there's some kind of telepathic connection among all the great mm-hmm. intelligences things, but they yeah. don't. Yeah. Well, and anyway, at the end, the the doctor has given Jamie the control for the Yeti and told mm-hmm. him to wait for uh, his signal. Uh, the doctor has been given this um, uh, hat. <laughs> mind control hat brain, lack of a better it's, word. it's like a it's like a, a skull cap made out of yeah. clear plastic mm-hmm. and he's fiddled with it to change something but nobody else knows he's done that and been sat in this pyramid where he's apparently gonna have his brain sucked out and uh and jamie takes action at this point without the doctor's approval and activates the yeti to start attacking and uh, starts yanking the doctor from the pyramid while the doctor's telling him to leave me be, don't pull me out, you're ruining everything. And it's interesting how, like, Jamie, by not following the doctor's orders, lets the great intelligence escape because the doctor's plan mm-hmm. would have destroyed the great intelligence, would have absorbed, he, the doctor would have absorbed it, would, he had reversed the polarity apparently. And, uh, and it's a, this interesting conflict between the doctor and Jamie. I thought that was an uh, interesting way of ending this where it's, it lets the great intelligence escape so that it can be, for, you know, a mm-hmm. villain in the future. But interesting. I wondered how they, because it's kind of dark. And, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. the whole last episode is, I mean, this serial is much darker than a lot of them have been. I mean, not just right? physically, but dramatically. Dramatically. And, <laughs> yeah. and not just in terms of the subway lighting. Yeah. But uh, and, and in fact, apparently they had a, and I think it still exists, exists as audio. Um, but coming out of the enemy of the world, they had a little promo that Patrick Troughton recorded in character to talk to the audience and say, oh, next week, our our friends, the Yeti are coming back. But it's going to be a little more intense than it was last time. So if you uh, if you feel a little scared, just have your mummy or daddy hold your hand. Mm. Oh, wow. <laughs> and and um, and it is much darker than yeah. previously. I mean, they kill everybody. All of the army guys die, yeah. in, in many of them in this big set piece battle. Um, but they kill all of the army guys except the brigadier and the comedy Welsh private yep. shifty guy. Everybody else dies. The civilians though survive. Yep. But the civilians are, you know, you've got Chorley who's unlikable and. It's 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 a pretty dark thing, and it gets it's it's especially dark in that final episode, which I think makes it work very well. 
But then at the end, okay, Jamie has just ruined the doctor's plans. Is that the note we're going to go out on? Yeah. yeah. Oh, and the great intelligence can come back someday in the future. This is not, they need a happier ending than that. And I was curious to see how they'd get one. And, um, and basically at that moment, Chorley, the annoying, rep- the annoying reporter shows up and wants to start quizzing the doctor about everything that's just happened, talk- telling the doctor he's going to be famous, he's going to put him on TV <laughs> and all this kind of stuff, which is exactly what the doctor does not want. And so that mm-hmm. gives us our comedy out. Yeah. It's like, because now the doctor needs to escape the annoying reporter. Right, right. And, and Anne has to explain the time machine thing to the reporter. Yeah. Uh, and that's where we end it. And yeah, they kind of uh, skip down the tunnel. They're actually lost in the tunnels again, yep. trying to find their way back to Covent Garden, uh, and uh, and that's how we ended. So, yeah. so and that's where the uh, that six episode story ends. So, Father Corey, any final notes? So, at one point, uh, the doctor mentions about following Fred Carnell's army, and that's mm-hmm. a phrase we we don't know here uh, that we don't use that here in the United States, but it is a phrase that it comes from a, a, a comedian called by the name of or went by the name of Fred Carnell. And he's really considered the origin of slapstick comedy, the, the, the physical slapstick comedy that Three Stooges are, are most well known here in the United States for. Um, and what it, it's used to uh, talk about any chaotic situation, especially like a chaotic group or organization. And so if Red Cardinal's army is basically like you've got a group of people and it's just total chaos. Nothing is he- working right. Nothing is organized. You know, and mm-hmm. so it, it kind of comes from the First World War, the Great War, as they call it, uh, where the volunteer soldiers joined Fred Carnell's army. And so it kind of comes from that. Sounds like Keystone pretty, Cops. That's what yeah, we would call it. Yeah. Yeah, that kind of deal. Uh, so uh, that that's where that comes from. That's kind of one of those, like I said, one of those phrases we don't hear here in the United States. Uh, and I think there might be another callback to that uh, later where the they've got the Yeti under their control now. The doctor and Jamie have the Yeti under their control. And the doctor says, well, come on, Fred. He named the Yeti Fred. Mm. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. Hmm. Uh, Jimmy, anything? So um, this is a giant base under siege story with mm-hmm. London being the base. And it's very effectively claustrophobic, setting it in the subway or underground, as they would say, over there. Um, I, Travers, at one point gets captured and i don't know if it's because the actor was going on vacation for a week but professor travers gets captured by the yeti at one point and we don't see him for like an episode and when he comes back he's possessed by the great intelligence and the great intelligence speaks through him to explain the plan that you're here for this iq drain doctor and i think they needed to explain the rules of this possession a little bit better because it's not clear. I mean, can the great intelligence just possess anybody at any time? Are there preparations that have to be made? Mm-hmm. Does he need a little device on him or something? And none of that is made clear. And eventually, after he's served his purpose, the great intelligence releases him from control. Uh, even though he's still captive, he's, he's no longer possessing him. And he's talking through like a box on the wall or something, you know, like an intercom. And it's mm-hmm. like, if you could do that, why did you need to possess this man in the first place? Uh, so he could grab uh, Victoria by the wrist and drag her down. No, well, the Yeti could have done that. that. Yeah, so I know, it's, I know. it's not clear why he needs to possess Professor Travers or what the rules of this possession are. Mm. And and so I I wish they had explained that better because it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. 
Yeah. Uh, not only does it not make a lot of sense for him to be possessing Staff Sergeant uh, Anderson or whatever his name was, Arnold, but it also um, doesn't make a lot of sense why he's pro- possessing Professor Travers. But it does establish the body hopping nature of the great intelligence that we will see in Matt Smith's era. Mm-hmm. Finally, I really liked the bit where there's a moment after the great intelligence has explained its plan that, uh, you know, the doctor is open to surrendering his mind in order to save all these other people. And he, and Jamie is objecting and like, well, what about Victoria who's been taken hostage? And the doctor tells Jamie, well, you'll have, she'll be your responsibility. And then I will be your and her responsibility. Mm. And Jamie is like, what do you mean? It's like, well, if I have the mind of a child, you and Victoria are going to have to raise me until I'm an adult again. Mm. <laughs> That's right. Just the way he matter-of-factly says that is just, you know, touching. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. All right. That should do it for now. We uh, want to first take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create The Secrets of Doctor Who, including Christopher K., Ira R., Tim W., Janelyn M., and Alex G., their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue The Secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And we'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week. So that's it from us. We'd love to hear what you thought of The Web of Fear. You can let us know by commenting at sqpn.com or The Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page or send an email to Who at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the ninth Doctor Big Finish story, Sphere of Freedom. That's right, we're going to be doing some uh, Big Finish stories featuring the ninth Doctor. Played by Christopher Eccleston. Played by Christopher Eccleston. So the, these are some brand new things that he's doing, his first Doctor Who appearances since the uh, that season. Until then, Jimmy Yakin, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Doctor Who. Thanks, Tom. Father Corey Stiga, thank you as well. Thank you, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, anyway, I'm not supposed to be down here. I'm a driver, I am. <laughs> <laughs>